You're listening to the ASN Kidney News Podcast. Eric Dishman does healthcare research for Intel, studying technical and societal solutions for problems in care for the aging. He is also a kidney patient. He founded the product research and innovation team responsible for driving Intel's worldwide healthcare research, new product innovation, strategic planning, and health policy and standards activities. Dishman is also recognized globally for driving healthcare reform through home and community-based technologies and services, with a focus on enabling independent living for seniors. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Business Week, and the Wall Street Journal named him one of 12 people who are changing your retirement. In part three, Mr. Dishman discusses innovation and technology, including the Shimmer technology, which allows one to collect body and behavioral data, what ASN can do to promote innovation, and innovation in the health reform bill. I'd like to, to use this part of the discussion as an opportunity to talk a little bit about Shimmer. And I guess I have two related questions. One is, where are you in the development of Shimmer, and how, how did you start down that road? Um, okay, Shimmer is a small, think of it as a sort of matchbox size, little wireless computer. And it, we use it for lots of different things. I often sort of call it a kind of computer, a kind of Lego kit um, after the, the toy Legos. So we can take this little matchbox size device and we can plug an ECG into it so it can become a, a heart monitor. It has sensors built into it that we can use to sort of monitor motion and accelerometry um, so that we can look at things like balls or movement patterns of somebody who is actually wearing this. You can stick it in your sock. You can stick it in your pocket. There's a lot of other sensors that can be plugged into it um, to sort of help collect either behavioral information around your environment or, or biological sort of vital signs information. We built it initially because in the research that we were funding at universities around home health technologies, so few of the universities were actually getting to actual outcome studies with patients. They would spend two or three years studying falls and sort of building a bunch of little widgets that help them sort of monitor falls in the elderly, but they it would spend so long focusing on the technology that it would actually never give to an outcome study to you know, make a big breakthrough in fall prevention or fall detection. So we built Shimmer as a kit that said, hey, all you university labs, we're going to give you a baseline set of technologies, both hardware and software tools, that will allow you to collect bodily and behavioral and biological data in the home and on the person. Don't go reinvent the wheel on that. Add new sensors and new capabilities and software to that over time so that we can grow a field of what we call behavioral markers, of technologies that can collect the subtle changes that are going on behavior that may show us that there's the onset of disease or differentiate one disease from another. So that's what we call this whole field of behavioral markers. So Shimmer is really a research platform. Um, and at some point, I was killing my Intel budget. I was sneaking money from my Intel budget to all these universities to give them these technologies. And it got to a point where I was like, look, I can't afford this anymore. So we actually licensed that technology out to a third-party company called Realtime Incorporated in Ireland and they sell these shimmer kits to universities and small companies that are trying to understand mobile health and personal health technologies and, and to build out these systems and sort of prove what works and what doesn't work. So now there's, you know, shimmer has sort of grown into a, 
a company and a, and a set of research ecosystems around the world of people trying to understand this. But the original instinct for shimmer was, was fall prevention. More than half of people over 65 fall each year. If you look at the, the two errors human um, report years ago and other sort of congressional reports, we, we know that falls and fall-related injuries, particularly for seniors, are hugely expensive and often result in death or you know, the, hip, the sort of canonical hip fracture that sort of leads to death. The state of the art of understanding what was going on in the bodies of seniors was pretty poor. A senior would fall. You know, my, my own grandmother-in-law fell in, in Tennessee. She died from the complications from the fall. Five or six months later, the state sent a report to her, not realizing that she had passed away, saying, you know, it was a self-report survey asking her what, what was she doing when she fell. So our understanding of the kinematic motion changes and the bodily changes that are going on was really these self-report surveys that were coming to often demented people six months after they had fallen or passed away. I was like, my God, we can do better than that. So with Shimmer, we started testing out known fallers, seniors with known different conditions, and collecting their movement data in the home and in a clinical environment to understand the biomechanics of what was changing in their body. And over time, we're getting smarter about what are the changes that are going on and what can we do to prevent the vast majority of these falls ever happening in the first place. And incidentally, a lot of them are being caused by mismedication or overmedication of seniors um, in the places where we have these shimmers in, in the homes of seniors or other technologies that we're using. I can almost, within an hour, tell you when they've come home with the new medication because we actually see mobility and motion differences compared to their own normal baseline in the home. And, you know, some specialist somewhere doesn't know what all the other doctors have them on has over-medicated them, has reduced their blood pressure too much or was using a drug for an off-label purpose for their specialty, but none of the rest of the folks on the care team are aware of it. So I, we believe a high percentage of these are going to come from medica medication reduction and reconciliation and then another high percentage of them are just muscle mass problems with seniors. You know, they're just not getting enough physical exercise. So we can do some really interesting things where we use shimmer to close the loop and kind of do dance, dance revolution for seniors, right, where we just show and encourage them through 10,000 steps a day programs and others, you know, how to maintain their muscle mass. So if a nephrologist wanted to work with you to develop behavioral markers for patients with kidney disease, how would they, how would they approach that challenge? Well, part of what I'm trying to do, I just got back from a workshop that we did with the National Institutes of Health where we're trying to get, at the, at the end of the day, I don't want Intel to be the kind of National Institute for Independent Living and Bio, you know, Behavioral Marker sort of research. And, and so we're really trying to teach NIH and the same equivalent uh, research organizations in the European Union what we've learned, how we've done it, and hand over some of this to them so that it's more open and public. Um, we've, we've been very open and public about our research, but at the end of the day, I can't keep funding this university research forever. We have two, co two places in the U.S., a program called Orcatech, O-R-C-A-T-E-C-H dot org. This is here in Oregon where I live and with Oregon Health and Science University. It has nothing to do with whales. No, no whales were harmed. Orcatech stands for the Oregon uh, Center for Aging and Technology. That's one of the sites where we've done a lot of this work, and we actually sometimes get NIH money that we put back out as call for proposals for, you know, people to sort of suggest ideas around where this kind of behavioral marker and behavioral capture technology actually might be helpful. So that would be one domain. And then the other big 
place that we funded this kind of work is in actually Ireland and a place called the Trill Center, T-R-I-L, trillcenter.org. These are the two kind of largest cohort investments that, that I know of, but we, I, I think soon you'll see some new calls for proposals. In fact, there's several, there's two calls for proposals out for the National Institutes of Health that are broadly construed as independent living technologies. And I think nephrologists or, or, or folks could certainly use some of these new programs that are emerging around independent living um, as, as a way to, to get some initial seed funding to explore this. And, and I think there's, as a kidney patient myself, and as somebody who has studied people on dialysis and others who are dealing with a wide range of medication challenges and balance and all of that, I think the potential for in-home technologies, not only just to do the dialysis at home, which of course is becoming more commonplace, but to capture your vital signs more ongoingly, to be able to sort of optimize when and how you do your dialysis and deal with nutrition and balance issues and falls and all of that. I, I think those I think it's a really rich space to explore some of these in home technologies and on the body technologies that are that are really available now. During the last couple of years ASN has expanded its annual meeting to include more biotechnology and bioengineering. And I'm just wondering beyond the meeting and, and we've discussed having the exhibitors the the exposition center sort of our exhibit hall be expanded to include an innovators row and so there's there's things that we want to do at the meeting, but that's one moment in time on an annual basis. Are there other things that a group like ASN could do to specifically help kidney patients in this arena? Having ASN convene one of these kind of I, I laughingly refer to them as Vulcan mind meld sessions where you bring in patients, nephrologists, and other other folks who are part of this sort of kidney care experience, and bioengineers and technologists, and facilitate really what can only be called group brainstorms to sort of understand what the needs are and, and what the technologies are. It would be amazing what you'll come out of with that. We've, we've done this in cardiology. We've done this in cancer care. And it really is that it's really addressing that imagination problem. You get the bioengineers and the other technologists in the room. You get the nephrologists in the room saying, God, I wish I could measure X, right? That would be game changing. Or I wish, I wish I had a way of coaching patients real time to do Y or Z. And more often than not, you'll discover if you brought those disciplines together that, that some of these things are low hanging fruit opportunities. There may be existing products and technologies that just have to be recast to go achieve that. Or, you'll at least identify some areas of research that it would be really good then to sort of advocate to, to the foundations and to the National Institutes, hey, we think these are some strategic fertile areas for research that you guys should go explore and, and then join in that advocacy effort. We had talked earlier about health reform, and it's not clear what's going to happen with the Affordable Care Act, but, but clearly, at least on, on one part of the government, there is a move to implement um, the legislation. I guess I have two questions. The first question is, from your perspective, what's positive about the, the reform legislation and what's negative? I personally, and on behalf of Intel, worked at the health care reform bill to pass um, and work with folks in Senate Finance and, and the Health Committee. Um, I have become a policy, quote-unquote, expert. I, I cringe to use the word expert by, by necessity um, and, and have done so for Intel. I've never had any sort of formal training in public policy myself. But I've been, I go to Washington, you know, once a month, and I've worked very closely on, on the bill. The, the bill is actually very innovation-friendly. I mean, the reality of it is most people – have, have not read it, and, and I have. I've read it five or six times. It, it takes five or six times to sort of get it. 
But I think what you have to sort of go back to are what are the kind of four principles that the president laid out in his speech to Congress before the bill passed and has been consistent about from the beginning. And those four principles are really the following. The first was about, you know, cover everyone, right, from an insurance perspective. And that wasn't just from a moral argument, though I, I believe that was part of his argument, right, that in a society of our wealth and our means and our leadership, it, it is a shame that we have so many uninsured, and it is a shame that we allow those uninsured to then be cared for at that medical mainframe and for the most expensive settings, which just doesn't make sense from a cost standpoint when a lot of that is not emergency care. So it was from a, both a moral argument as well as, I think, very much a business argument that says, look, if we cover everyone – then we're going to get rid of some of the perversities of how we end up covering everyone anyway, but in a, in a really in a, in a really sort of economically and, and sort of um, bureaucratically painful way. The second was really about is that shift from volume-driven care to value-driven care, or, or you know, stopping the fee-for-service paradigm and say we're going to pay for fee for results. We've got to use best practices. We've got to measure quality in some meaningful ways, and we've got to reward positive outcomes and not just volume of care. And that was clearly a big part of the strategy and is a big part of the health reform bill. The third was to start to prioritize prevention because we're never going to get out of the sort of cost crisis if we have only a reactive care system. And, and so let's go fix the incentives. Let's subsidize preventive care in the near term and fix the incentives so that preventive care becomes the norm, not the exception over a longer period of time. And then the fourth, and this is where it's most controversial, depending on sort of you know your beliefs about how you calculate the economics of this, was to be cost neutral over a 10, 15 year period of time. And you know I'm not an economist, and both parties hate the Congressional Bedford Office when they come out and sort of say things that don't support what their needs are. And in no matter what, however you model the cost savings in any one bill under any administration some future administration is going to come and change and tweak those things. So however you modeled it is not going to end up being the reality, right? I don't know whether this will be cost neutral over a period of time or not is what I'm ultimately saying. But those were the four principles of the bill. And if you look at the bill, at what it actually has in it, most of the bill is moving in a is moving and making progress towards those four principles. Does it need to be revised and fixed and tweaked like all legislation does? Absolutely. Would it be crazy to repeal it? In my opinion, it would be because it set us on a path towards reforming and innovating our, our health care system that we shouldn't sort of turn back from now. And the reality of it is no one I know in, in Washington really believes that it's going to get repealed. We're going to do a lot of political theater to hurt both parties to try to win presidential elections and end up hurting the society as a result of it. But the actual fundamental tenets, those four that I just laid out, are very bipartisan. I have worked directly with the Republicans and the Democrats, and they all believe that this world of care coordination, this world of collective payment, this world of incentivizing preventive care is the world that we're going to have to get to. Whether or not it's ACOs, accountable care organizations in this particular incarnation, is unclear. Whether or not it's going to happen, you know, by 2014 or 2020 is unclear, but the strategic directions are pretty clear. And by the way, those strategic directions are incredibly consistent with the 22 other health reform bills that passed in other nations. So we have some intersubjective agreement that the rest of the world thinks this is where care is going as well. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. 
All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.